have the Texas Normal Singing folks with us. You maybe didn't know that they were going to be using our facility this week. They typically do this every year at Abilene Christian University, but with all the COVID chaos and everything, they're going to be using our facility this week, and many of them are already here. I saw some of them in the Family Center, and I see Tim and you know, Levi and some of you guys back there. Robin, good to see you guys. Thank you so much for being here, and uh, we look forward to being with you this week here at the building. Um, also, thank you for being here. I know we have a lot that are joining us online because uh, they're just not comfortable getting out yet, but we are so glad uh, to see faces this morning. You know, uh, in northwest Arkansas, not far from where I came from, there is a town called Eureka Springs. And Eureka Springs is known for its outdoor passion play. A lot of people flock to this event every year. And there is a story that is told that I'm sure is not true, but there was a story about a gentleman who was an actor playing Jesus in the great passion play. And it came to the point in the play where Jesus picks up his cross, and as he is walking along, a heckler in the crowd started yelling at this actor playing Jesus. And the actor didn't much appreciate it, but the heckler kept on and kept on until finally the actor playing Jesus put down his cross, walked over to the heckler, and punched him in the mouth. <laughs> now, after the play, the director comes up to him and says, look, I, I can't have a Jesus that punches people in the mouth. You can't do that. And he says, I know. I lost my cool. I'm sorry. I won't, I won't do that again. And so the next night, there was another performance, and the actor playing Jesus comes to the point in the play where he picks up his cross, he begins walking, and once again, the heckler in the crowd begins shouting insults. He becomes more and more obnoxious until finally the actor drops the cross, walks over to him, and punches him in the mouth again. After the play that night, the director comes up to the actor and says, look, you're done. I'm sorry, but I can't, I can't use you anymore. And the actor begs and pleads with the director, please, 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 let me keep my job. It won't happen again, I promise. And so finally, the director relents and gives him his job back. And the next night, there's another performance. And the next night, the actor playing Jesus picks up his cross. And he begins the point where he's walking. And the heckler's still in the crowd. And he begins launching into the insults. He's even more obnoxious this time than he'd been the previous two nights. And rather than walking over and punching him in the mouth, the actor playing Jesus just stops, looks at him and points and says, I'll deal with you after the resurrection, buddy. <laughs> Thank you, because in the family center, nobody laughed. I appreciate that. <laughs> you know, Jesus dealt with his fair share of hecklers while he was on this earth, didn't he? And to my knowledge, he never punched anyone in the mouth, although I'm sure that was one of his greatest temptations. But over and over again, he kept his fists at his side as he dealt with the religious leaders who were trying to contain him and control him. And they learned that they couldn't win a war of words with him, and so they resulted to killing the messenger. I want you to look with me at Mark chapter 12, beginning of verse 1. Mark 12, beginning of verse 1, it reads, "...and he began to speak to them in parables." A man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a vat under the wine press and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. They took him and beat him and sent him away empty handed. Again, he sent them another slave and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and that one they killed. And so with many others, beating some and killing others, he had one more to send, a beloved son. 
He sent him last of all to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those vine growers said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture, the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to seize him. And yet they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke the parable against them. And so they left him and went away. So this parable is a response to the Jewish leaders. It's a parable that sums up the story of Israel and really sums up the entire story of Scripture. God, of course, represents the owner of the vineyard. You have the vineyard itself, which is Israel. You have the vine growers, which represent the rulers throughout the nation of Israel and their history. The servants or slaves stand for the prophets, and then Jesus, of course, is the son. Jesus paints a picture of a vineyard with all the proper equipment. You have the walls that are there to mark off the boundaries and to keep out robbers and thieves and animals. There's a vat and a wine press. There was a tower for the wine to be stored. You had the cultivators who had their own lodging, which meant that that also allowed them to keep watch over the vineyard. The picture of Israel as a vineyard and God as owner of that vineyard is a depiction that the Jews were very familiar with. They knew all about this picture. In fact, as Jesus was talking about this, their minds probably hearkened back to Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, which gives some more detail about this parable. This is a page ripped right out of Israel's history, and so they knew exactly what Jesus was talking about, and they knew exactly who Jesus was talking about. Of course, what made them angry is that Jesus places them smack dab in the middle of the story, and it's not a story that paints them in a positive light, which is why they got so upset. But this wasn't just a story of ancient Israel. The ones who were hearing Jesus tell it moved from being in the audience to being a participant in the story themselves. This wasn't just a parable. It was a confrontation with personal destiny. The fate of these Jews determined the response to God's Son. Jesus drives this point home as he quotes Psalm 118 and verse 22, which reads, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Now, this psalm was originally written in reference to Israel. The surrounding nations that were all great just looked at the nation of Israel as like this podunk, insignificant nation. But of course, the psalmist is saying, no, the nation of Israel is going to be great because of who is leading them. They're going to be a light to all other nations. Of course, that plan failed. And the reason why it failed is because they rejected the chief cornerstone. They rejected the Messiah. The cornerstone of this building was rejected. And we know, and you've probably heard this many, many times, that the chief cornerstone of any building is the one that you know, governs the walls and the alignment of the structure. And so you remove that one stone and everything gets out of whack. That's what happened when the Jews rejected the Messiah. The anointed one had come. The kingdom had come with him. The chief cornerstone was among them. And what did they do? They rejected him. The cornerstone became a stumbling block. Now, stumbling block or stumbling stone in the Greek is the word scandalon, and it simply means offense. And like with a lot of Greek words and translations and transliterations, we can find a, a, an English word in there. And certainly you can with scandalon, right? You find the word scandal. Was Jesus scandalous? 
Was he an offense? Oh, you better believe it. At least to some, right? Have you ever seen one of these? You know what this is? This is a scandalon. That's what it's called. Did the Jewish leaders not set a trap for Jesus? I mean, more than once, didn't they? At least they tried. Over and over again, they tried to bait him. They tried to trap him. They tried to back him in a corner. In fact, immediately following what we read a moment ago in Mark chapter 12, we find these words. It says, Then they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement. Jesus was a stumbling block to those who refused to accept his identity and his message. The Pharisees and scribes, along with the Sadducees, were offended by the claims of Jesus, and therefore they sought to catch him in a trap. You know, you can drive west of here down I-20, and outside of Sweetwater, you find that the road kind of forks, and you can keep going on I-20, or you can go on Highway 84 to Lubbock. And in between Snyder and Lubbock, there is a town called Post. And many of you know where Post is. But right before you get into Post, as the speed limit winds down to 55, you smell something, don't you? It's in the air. You have this noxious odor. The first time I went, to, uh, went through post, I was riding with my friend Robert O'Dell, and I looked over at him. I said, what's that smell? And he goes, it's money. It smells like money. And I guess if you have stock in oil, you would think that, right? I didn't appreciate the smell of crude oil because to me it was just a noxious odor because, I, I mean, I don't have any sort of stock in oil. But it depends on your perspective, right? If you're in the oil business, that's a sweet smell. If you're not, it's probably just another noxious odor. It depends on your perspective. And such is the case with Jesus being the precious cornerstone or the stumbling stone. Look at what Peter writes. Starting in verse 4, he says, And coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, for this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word and to this doom." They were also appointed. Jesus was not a precious cornerstone to everybody. It depended on your perspective. In fact, notice Luke 2, 34 and 35, it says, And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed, and a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So from his birth... Baby Jesus was destined to have different effects on different people, right? For some, he would be the cause of their rising. For others, he would be the cause of their stumbling. Jesus has always been a precious cornerstone for some and a stumbling block for others. And nothing has changed. What was true then is every bit as true today. There have been, are now, and will always be those who are attracted to Jesus and those who are repelled by him. It's kind of like the uh, family in New York that bought a rare Chinese bowl at a yard sale for $3. They set it up in their home as just decor until one day they decided, you know what, we need to go get this assessed. 
or appraised. And so they took it to an expert appraiser and found that it was worth $2.2 million. True story. Maybe you saw that. Now, obviously, they don't use it as home decor anymore. They made a pretty good profit off of it. But you think about what the guy must have felt like who sold them that for $3, if he even knows. I mean, think about how sick at his stomach he has to feel. But it happens all the time in our world. People don't recognize the value of something, especially the value in investing in Jesus Christ, investing in a life of discipleship. Not all people see Jesus as priceless. Not all of people see him as worth investing everything. Why do so many people reject the chief cornerstone? And the reason why is because biblical Christianity offers a crucified Christ and a choice. Make him the cornerstone of your life or he will be a stumbling stone that causes you to fall. And you cannot be neutral here. It is one or the other. It is an either-or proposition. Either he's the rock of your faith or the rock of offense. And it all depends on your perspective. Is he nothing more than a cheap trinket sold at a weekend garage sale? Or is he the one worth investing everything for an eternal reward? You know, my dad grew up farming. He grew up on a farm and loved to farm, still loves farming and would do that if, if he were able he wanted his son to love farming so much. And at a young age, I kind of did because I just wanted to be around my dad. So he had a farm outside of Brinkley, Arkansas, where he grew up. And on the weekends, he would go down there and I would go with him. He also had land around our hometown and I would go and help him. He would give me little jobs to do and I enjoyed doing it because I wanted to be with my dad. I wanted to make him proud as he saw me fulfill the responsibilities he gave me. But as I grew and as I became a teenager, the whole tone and tenor of everything changed. My dad thought it would be good to teach me discipline and hard work and integrity and character by making me do all the really hard jobs on the farm. So I pulled Johnson grass, I fixed rice spills, I, I chopped cotton, and I didn't enjoy it. Not at all. In fact, I despised it. You know what I didn't do? I didn't ride in the tractor that was air-conditioned listen to the radio. I didn't get to do any of that. I did all the hard jobs. And some of you are thinking, yeah, yeah come talk to me because you did a lot harder than that. But still, my dad wanted me to love farming and I hated it. Can you imagine a God that wanted people to love him and his son so much so that they could be redeemed? And yet not only did they not rise up to the level of love that God had for them, they rejected the cornerstone. My dad wanted so badly for me to love farming, and I hated it, and it broke his heart. But in an astronomically greater degree, God wanted so much for the people to love his son, and yet they despised him. They killed their hope, and it happens all the time in our society, doesn't it? People kill their hope with empty things, whether it be money or, or recreation or sex or drugs or alcohol or whatever it is. People kill their hope by rejecting Jesus. Jesus is an offense, a scandal on, a stumbling block to those who enjoy sin. God knows my heart. Don't judge me. God just wants me to be happy, right? Jesus is a scandal on, an offense, a stumbling block because he is exclusive. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men 
by which we must be saved. Jesus is an offense, a scandal on, a stumbling block because he is the authority. He is the final arbiter on all truth. Remember when Jesus, in a fit of anger, cleared out the temple? He turned over the table of the money changers because they were turning his father's house into a robber's den. And in Mark's gospel, it tells us that the priests, let me say that again, the priests and the Pharisees and the whole Jewish power structure combined to oppose Jesus. This means that the Pharisees and the Sadducees who were often opposed to one another came together in a mutual effort to bring down Jesus. They demanded, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do these things? And of course, we know the authority that Jesus had because it was God's house. Therefore, he had all authority to do the things that he was doing. Plus, he would be the third temple, so to speak. My friends, certainly you have paid at least a little bit of attention to what's going on around us, haven't you? I mean... Turn on the news for five minutes. Read the front page of the newspaper. Scroll through social media for just 30 seconds. And what you find is a world that is divided and a world that is thrust into chaos. What you see is a culture that has rejected the chief cornerstone. You see it over and over again. Not only have they rejected the precious cornerstone, but the precious cornerstone is a rock of offense. You see it in the mantras of our culture. Don't tell me who I can love. Don't tell me who I can, who I can be with. Don't, don't tell me I can't kill my baby. Don't tell me that there is a God. So what does all this mean for us? How are we to respond? Well, we can't go punching the hecklers in the mouth. That's not our role. So what do we do? How do we respond? As Jesus' disciples... We too will be a rock of offense for some. Jesus even said, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. And my friends, we cannot overreact to this truth. Some Christians soften the gospel to minimize truth and thus to be less offensive. Still others minimize grace by toughening up the gospel. And either approach keeps people from Jesus. We cannot be about grace or truth. There's not an or here. It's an and. But grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ, and so it is with us. We are to be about grace and truth, conviction, and compassion. We must be in balance here. Because listen, I have said this before, but it bears repeating. If everyone in the world hates us, we're doing something wrong. But if everyone in the world loves us, we're doing something wrong. Because as disciples of Jesus, we will draw some in, and we will push others away. Not that we purposely try to repel others, but it kind of comes with the territory, doesn't it? Jesus was the most perfect man. He was the anointed one, the Messiah, who came to fulfill Israel's story, and they rejected him. They even hung him on a cross. Some followed, but not everyone. Look, 
As disciples of Jesus, we must accurately demonstrate grace and truth. And when we do that, some will see the one we follow as a precious cornerstone that they want to know more about. And others will see the one we follow as a stumbling block and one that they want nothing to do with. Here's the thing about a precious cornerstone and a stumbling block. It can be the same stone. You know, I can take that precious cornerstone and I can put it in some weeds and kind of conceal it and you can walk along and trip over it and maybe sprain your ankle. And I can take it and I can set it on the foundation and let it govern the walls and the lines of a building and make a solid structure. Same stone, just depends on how you use it. And so here's my question for you this morning. Are you building on a strong foundation? And are you contributing to the strength of the Lord's church? Are you a precious cornerstone or a stumbling stone? And we've already determined that you're probably going to be both, right? If you're living the way Jesus would have you to live. But certainly we don't seek to be a stumbling block to anyone. We're not trying to be offensive. But when we follow Jesus, it may be kind of like that, uh, that bug zapper. And we draw some in. Hopefully we don't zap them, but we may attract some. Others we may repel. It's all a part of being a disciple. But if we are building on the strong foundation, if we are contributing to the strength of the Lord's church, we're going to be who we need to be. We're going to be about grace and truth, not one or the other. And although we don't try to be offensive, we may be to some, but ultimately we are pleasing to God, which is what we should be seeking anyway, right? If you're visiting with us this morning, I want you to know that this is a loving church family that cares about your soul and your spiritual welfare. And I want you to know that we want to help you in any way that we can. So if you need prayer, if you need the support of this family, maybe you've been attending with us for quite some time and you want to study the Bible with somebody, we can do that for sure. Maybe you're ready to begin a daily walk with God in baptism. We can take care of that also. I'm glad you're here. I'm thankful that you chose to be with us this morning. And some of you may have been thinking, well, if I go there, the roof's going to cave in. I haven't been to church ever or, or very often. And you notice the roof's still standing. You're still fine. We're here to help you. Let us help you. Luke's going to lead us in a song. Why don't you come as we stand and as we sing?